You're listening to Dedication Point, a speaker series and podcast produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. Before we jump into today's episode, I need to share a quick update about Snake River Raptor Fest, the annual event hosted by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership. Last year, we were forced to host a virtual only event, so we're extremely excited that this year's festival will feature an in-person gathering with live music, kids' activities, food trucks, beer, wine, and live birds of prey at Indian Creek Winery in Cuna, Idaho on Saturday, August 28th. Tickets are free, but must be reserved ahead of time. Check out our website at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org or check out our Facebook page to learn more. During the week leading up to our in-person event, we'll be featuring a series of virtual presentations featuring raptor conservation work and research being conducted in the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. All of these presentations will be live streamed from our Birds of Prey NCA partnership Facebook page. There's a schedule posted on our website. Anyone who's been listening to the interviews that we've produced as a part of this series has heard about some of the impacts that climate change are having on the Snake River Canyon region. Increasing temperatures and changes in precipitation have changed how raptors interact with this landscape and have also dramatically increased the risk of wildfire. When the native shrubland habitat burns under these conditions, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to replant native shrubs and restore the ecosystem to its historic condition. Today's guest is an expert on climate adaptation and was the lead author of a recent paper outlining a new approach towards land management that takes into account the dramatic climatic changes that are an inevitable part of our future. So I'm Patty Glick. My title is uh, Senior Scientist for Climate Adaptation at the National Wildlife Federation. I work for our, our national team, although I'm uh, currently based in Bend, Oregon, um, which I, I think post-COVID, I'm probably not going to go back to our Washington, D.C. office. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I, but I can speak to a lot of uh, issues, not just Oregon-related issues. You've been uh, sort of playing this role uh, focused on climate adaptation for, for quite a while, right? I mean, I, I wonder, like, how did that come about? Like, where did the, your interest in this topic of climate change adaptation come from? Well, it's, it's interesting that I've actually been working on climate change for since the early 1990s. Maybe it's just me. Um, you know, at the time, it was really starting to gain a lot of uh, traction and attention. Um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change had been established in Rio. I think it was 1992. Of course, Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, came out that year, and that, that inspired me as well. And it, I've always been very interested in, in conservation and nature, but even back then, I think what, what really struck me about climate change and why I wanted to work on the issue in general was just how fundamentally humans are changing the environment. I mean, it's just, it was unbelievable even to me then, um, you know, that we could, it could be exacting such a, a tremendous um, impact on our planet. And, 
You know, I actually started more on the mitigation side of things, which is, you know, trying to reduce um, climate change by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, it, at the time, um, you know, I think it just has been, even back then, a challenge of really trying to connect the dots for people on what it means and why people should care. And it's one of the reasons I started uh, working for the National Wildlife Federation, and this is now 20 plus years ago, um, mainly because they really did um, want to bring the issue to the public and, and create a grassroots outreach campaign. Um, but at the same time we were trying to connect the dots for people, we were talking about the impacts that climate change is already having. And it occurred to me even then, why, you know, should we also be talking about how do we deal with those impacts? Um, and, you know, at the time, I think a lot of people working on climate change were afraid to talk about adaptation, which is dealing with the impacts, because there was a fear that um, we would look like we're giving up and that we're throwing up our hands on the mitigation side of things. But, you know, we at the National Wildlife Federation recognize that, hey, we need to do both. We need to minimize climate change the best we can, but we are dealing with impacts, increasingly dealing with impacts. So, so climate adaptation really was a, a logical uh, transition for us as an, an organization and, and for our mission um, to, to be able to ensure that wildlife can survive in a rapidly changing world. I wonder if there was like a moment or, or something that happened that sort of made you realize like, oh, we need to focus on adaptation in addition to mitigation, you know? Yeah, you know, again, a lot of it was just already seeing striking um, changes uh, right in front of us. For me, a lot, I spent a lot of time at the beach and, um, you know, coastal issues, sea level rise, uh, increasing storms, it's, it's right in front of us. Um, you know, I think sea level rise in particular for a lot of coastal communities has been one of the early areas in which communities are thinking about adaptation. Again, because I think we're starting to see the, the, the effects and it's hitting people, um, you know, where they live and, and where they recreate. And, and so uh, a lot of my early work um, within the National Wildlife Federation was looking at the potential effects of sea level rise on coastal habitats and species, but also to coastal communities. And, and it's, the, the issue of adaptation then has, has grown you know, in other ways, I think, um, especially for, if you look at what a lot of the national parks are, are seeing, coastal parks, of course, but here in the West, uh, you know, the wildfire seasons alone, I think, have been a real wake-up call for, um, you know, for not just, you know, not just parks, but communities out here that are facing real, real risks. We talk about climate change adaptation, right? And I think, like, big picture, I think a lot of people understand what that means, right? It's adapting to the changes that are already happening or the changes that are inevitable um, as a result of climate change. But like, I think a lot of people have a hard time like wrapping their minds around like, well, what does that mean? You know, like what are some, like maybe you can talk about like some of the like early examples that you that you worked on that you would put into that category. Well, it's, it's interesting when we, when we think about uh, climate adaptation, it's, you know, some people um, say 
people who are uh, you know used to the term adaptation from kind of a an evolutionary perspective yes there's some of that to it there's some natural uh, adaptation that certain species might be able to take say moving to um areas that have a you know that that are more climatically suitable um, but we also talk about adaptation from a management perspective, and that's the human end of things. You know, what can we do to help wildlife adapt? What, whether that is, um, you know, ensuring that there are not barriers to dispersal if they can disperse, or actually maybe even physically moving, a, you know, certain plants or species to another area that they might um, persist in in the future. So. You know, there's no one size fits all approach to adaptation. Um, you know, it's, it's going to depend very much on um, both the ability of, of um, again, species or, or 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 plants to to move on their own, our ability to move them, or uh, their ability to persist through their own evolution. So it's, it, you know, again, there's no one size fits all approach to adaptation. Um, and I think when you look at um, just the diversity of, of, from a fish and wildlife perspective, the diversity of habitats that we have, um, there's a whole range of um, vulnerability that, that needs to be understood before we can really identify the right steps to take. Maybe you can talk specifically about this, um, this report that you were one of the lead authors on and like how that came about, right? Like, was it, you know, a really bad wildfire season that like spurred uh, folks to, you know, that sort of like initiated that? Well, so the, the, um, the National Park Service actually has been concerned about climate change for quite some time. You know, it was actually 20 years ago that they chose to move the lighthouse at um, Cape Hatteras National Seashore because it was already being affected, as we talked a little bit about before, with sea level rise and erosion. Um, but yeah, I think um, parks across the country have been noticing changes more and more. And, and the, the genesis of this, this report that, that the National Wildlife Federation helped them put together um, really began uh, as part of a, a, a broader coalition of um, nat uh, natural resource agencies from the Park Service and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA and others um, about um, six or seven years ago, recognizing the need to develop guidance for managing um, uh, natural resources uh, under changing climate conditions. And building on that work, the Park Service wanted us to customize that guidance for their needs. And so we worked very closely with them um, for the last five years to develop the, what's called planning for a changing climate. And, you know, they, it, it very much reflects their vision. Um, the, part, the agency is, recognizes that there are a lot of uncertainties with climate change. There's a great potential for surprises and unforeseen events. And so they have really adopted an approach that is um, focused on looking at multiple scenarios for future conditions. And so they're planning for everything from the best case scenario to the worst case scenario and everything in between. And it's, it's a, it's a unique approach for, for, for them, um, uh, but, you know, I, th I think it's one that, 
you know, recognizes the reality that, uh, you know, more than a century of, you know, trying to maintain persistence of, of, you know, historical conditions is really no longer tenable. And so the agency is having to um, ask some pretty difficult questions and, and, you know, try to uh, provide for the many things that people love about our national parks. But in, in, in a way that is um, recognizes the reality of, of a changing climate and perhaps the need to make some hard choices. So like maybe we can sort of get into the specifics a little bit like like what is the sort of new management framework like how is like, you know, what are the recommendations contained within this report and how different are they from what like Park Service land managers have been doing for the last century. Well, so one of the interesting things that the, that the Park Service has helped develop is a framework for thinking about um, managing for change and not just persistence. Um, you know, so much of our conservation um, history has been about persistence of historical or even maintaining current conditions, restoring to some uh, previously desired state. Um, the reality is that um, with conditions changing so much, the ability to maintain persistence, you know, say of even um, namesake park features like glaciers and Glacier National Park, it's, it's that's unfortunately not something that's going to be practical. Um, so the the agency has um, helped develop a framework called what they call um, ranging from resisting to perhaps accepting change or even directing change. It's, a, it's kind of a nice acronym called RAD, the RAD framework. You'll maybe have heard about in, in some of the, the newspaper articles that have come out on this issue. Um, and essentially it just means, you know, for, for changes that are underway, yeah, let's try and resist them when we can to the best you know, degree we say, maybe um, irrigate um, sequoia trees in Sequoia National Park where they're thinking about doing that. Some cases we may have to accept change. For example, the loss of glaciers. Um, not a whole lot. Where, you know, I know in in some places like in the Alps, they're actually laying tarps on glaciers to prevent them from from melting. And there's certainly some innovative stuff being done. But for the most part, some changes we are going to have to accept and interpret. But then there are also opportunities to um, perhaps direct change uh, in a way that may at least um, on a larger scale, help maintain persistence of a species, even if it's in a different place than it used to be in the past. So again, I mentioned Glacier National Park. You know, they, there may be very little they can do to prevent the loss of glaciers, but they are doing, they've actually for their um, endangered uh, cutthroat trout, they're actually moving some of those um, fish to higher elevation lakes. And again, it's, it's a change from historical conditions, but that's being done to maintain persistence of the species on a whole. And there's hope that some of those lakes will not warm as, as quickly as some of the, the current habitat for those species. Gotcha. And that's an awesome example, right? And it's, it's, I, I think it's really cool to see land managers, uh, you know, sort of breaking from, from that mold. If you're trying to, pres if you're trying to restore any ecosystem to some historic point in the past, 
like the historic point that you choose is arbitrary, no matter what, at least in my opinion, you know, it's like, like, unless you're trying to say that you want to restore it to like the way it was before humans were there, but then it's like, we're going back 15, 20,000 years at that point, if that's the case. And that's not what most land managers are talking about. So like, I, I love that it's it like that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe this is like a silver lining to this whole issue is that like, I think that there were issues with, that approach even separate from climate change. And I don't know, like, I wonder if that's a, like, was a part of the thought process at all as this was being crafted. I think for sure, um, you know, for, for example, well, the parks, for the park service, for sure, we've also been working um, on uh, similar issues with uh, national forest restoration efforts. And, and from that perspective, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The idea of restoration um, ecological restoration had had for the better part of the last century been founded on um, you know this idea of, of uh, you know historical range of variability, which again you know some some people who have worked in in um, restoration try and pick this baseline as being prior to European settlement which is also quite arbitrary. You know, obviously humans have been on the landscape here in North America for well, well, you know, thousands of years. So there's um, that, that prior, you know, to European settlement is very arbitrary anyway. But from a climate change perspective, you know, we're looking, we're looking at change, even if you're looking at historical range of variability over the past 800,000 years um, where we've seen carbon dioxide emissions go up and up and down, up and down. It's never really been more lower than about 150 parts per million to 300 parts per million. Now we're at like 450, you know, we're over 400 parts per million in, you know, from a geologic time scale alone, that's a blink of an eye. So this idea of, of, you know, maintaining some historical range is, is I mean, it, it, we've already thrown that, that baby out, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, so it's a challenge for, for um, just the practice of restoration. Um, it's, it's almost like you have to restore forward. Um, and what does that look like? What is a desired future condition look like? Um, can we work our way towards something rather than, you know, just accepting that changes are underway. Um, and that's, you know, it's going to require innovation uh, from a conservation perspective. I, I think that the, the tarps on glaciers is one, you know, unique piece of innovation. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I think we're going to need increasingly to be creative in, in how we, um, we conserve, uh, you know, I, I think the idea of protection even is, um, you know, a little bit up, upended in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, you made that point really, you made this point, I think, really well just now by talking about how, you know, it's like the 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 level of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is so much higher than it has been. It's like we have to go back hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago to find like a comparable point. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's like the, the the changes that we should expect are are actually like like quite radical, right? Um, and you know, I, I guess I wonder. It's like, like I love, 
I, I love the example that you brought up from from Glacier National Park, right? But like in a certain context, like like that's that's like kind of an easy example, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you know, uh, and I wonder if we think about something like Joshua Tree National Park, right, where like the namesake of the park almost certainly won't be there for much longer, and so it's like one of the things that I think about a lot in the context of land management is like, if like, does the boundary of the park change, right? Like, because you, right. you, you created Joshua Tree National Park, if there aren't Joshua trees there, it's like, you could, I could imagine a, a climate adaptation approach where you're like, let's intentionally plant Joshua trees in an area where we expect based on climate modeling uh, mm -hmm. and habitat, you know, that that will be good for them with all of these dramatic changes that happen. But that area is going to be well outside of the current park boundaries. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a challenge, I think, in particular for some of these namesake parks. I mean, we, we joke a little bit about, uh, you know, having to rename Joshua Tree, the park formerly known as Joshua Tree, right? Um, and then I always, in my presentations, I put the, you know, the, the print symbol up there. But but I, I mean, I think um, it, it's it's as much of a cultural challenge as it is, you know, a physical challenge. Uh, and that's probably the hardest thing I think uh, for agencies like the the Park Service, you know, because people know these parks because of their namesake species, and and that's a hard thing to um, just to think about having to let go. Um, so yeah, on the broader landscape scale, I think that there are places where Joshua trees will continue to um, be able to survive and, and thrive. Um, you know, uh, it, again, it's it's kind of a it's um, it's a values-based question uh, as much as it is a, you know a, a science-based question. Um, and you know, I think perhaps um, that's why uh, I think that the work that the National Park Service is doing to help people understand the impacts of climate change is, is especially important because it does speak to, to people. You know, again, I, I mentioned one of the reasons I've been at the National Wildlife Federation is they really uh, found their work on um, building grassroots support for um, protecting, um, you know, our environment. And um, I think the Park Service's role in, in, in that is as important as what the managers are doing on the ground in, in, in their management work. So, Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, as you were working on this report, right, I mean, you're, surely you were working directly with um, Park Service employees. Yes, yeah, this is very, yeah, very, very much collaborative effort. We um, you know, in their vision, for sure. Yeah. So, like, I guess my question is sort of like, what sense do you get as far as like the folks who, because you know, you're talking about sort of like this culture shift that mm -hmm. needs to take place, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, do you get a sense that the folks, like the managers, the folks who are working on this issue for the Park Service, like, how open are they to some of these like more radical ideas, right? Like, and I'm just I'm using yeah. Joshua Tree as an example, but I think there's lots of examples of this, right? Like even if uh, a particular species isn't the namesake of a park, right? It's like mm -hmm. the things that managers have been like tasked with, uh, you know, protecting, I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, conserving over these many, many decades, 
like they're going to have in order to maintain like that conservation ethic. It's like, we're going to have to think outside of the current boundaries of park service sites. Right. For, for sure. Um, you know, I mean, again, I think for a lot of you the, the, on the ground folks within the park service, I mean, their, their mission is about protection into, and I mean, even you know, they talk about into perpetuity, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it, it, I think, um, I think in particular, you know, leadership within the agency recognizes this, this big picture, but getting, and that's why this guidance is so important, because I think that it, it helps the managers recognize that there is space for them to think about um, achieving their mission, even in spite of some of this change. It gives them, I don't want to say gives them cover, but it does give them, I think, permission to recognize that there are changes and that there are challenges to managing parks in these conditions and that they have the ability um, to to think outside the box, uh, if you will, and outside the park. Um, I I think as well, you know, we're starting to see um, a lot of collaboration between national parks and neighboring lands in part because of this need to, to think more holistically about um, uh, our, our ecological systems as we're experiencing rapid change. Um, we're seeing, you know, from one part to another, there's another really good example, um, you know, places like the Indiana Dunes National, um, uh, I said, like, I don't know if that's a, a lake shore, I can't remember um, what that park is called. But I know that they have lost um, the corner blue butterfly, which is a really iconic um, endangered butterfly species in the, the Great Lakes area. But um, the um, um, Apostle Lakes um, area doesn't currently have the corner blue butterfly, but they're actually thinking that their park might be able to support the, the butterfly in in and under changing climatic conditions they, they think that they can plant lupin which is an important food source for the um or nectar source for the butterfly and and um so they're actually thinking about maybe introducing the species up there so that's a new goal for that park it's kind of park to park collaboration but thinking about climate change has opened that kind of decision making up totally yeah that's really interesting that's a cool example and i mean you brought up uh sort of the idea of like collaborating with other areas, you know, alongside parks and like, um, and, and obviously, you know, like interagency collaboration, collaboration amongst different parks, but then obviously just like working with communities and private landholders, like I, I imagine like is, is a really crucial part of this as well. Very, very much so. And, and again, I, I also think, um, you know, well, the focus of this particular guidance is on adaptation, while much of the work that I do is now pretty much full on uh, adaptation. Um, it's important to, to, to think about the, the mitigation side of things as well. I think partly when you start having to answer these really tough questions about losing iconic species and so, so on, that perhaps is, is going to create more um, of a demand on the part of the public to, to want to reduce emissions as well. Um, but there's a, a, a third 
side of that, um, and that is, um, I think, that the Park Service is looking at and the Forest Service and other natural resource agencies are looking at, and that's the uh, ability for natural systems like forests and coastal wetlands to sequester and store carbon. So there's kind of a, a dual um, benefit to protecting and enhancing these natural systems, not only to help them um, be more resilient to changing climate, but also perhaps to um, enhance their ability to, to fix things on the emission side as well. So it's, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition uh, on, on, on the issue that, you know, I've been able to kind of straddle. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. This idea that like parks could be carbon sinks, right? That they could. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, that that takes being mindful of the threats of climate change, because, you know, you look at how quickly with these mega fires that we're seeing in the West, how quickly that carbon can, um, you know, be, you know, emitted, you know, once, once those fires start. So it requires, um, you know, kind of a dual thought of making sure that these systems are not at risk from these catastrophic fires. So doing things like prescribed burns, which the Park Service has long um, uh, done, and, um, you know, increasingly doing so on, on other uh, natural um, resource lands as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, that was actually going to be my next question for you was about wildfires and, and like that particular threat, because obviously that's a really big one that's connected to climate change and this whole issue of adaptation. Um, and I mean, I actually like had this awesome experience, like my very first job, like wildlife related job was a student conservation internship at Lassen Volcanic National Park. And oh, I remember yeah. I got a chance to like work with some of the uh, the uh, the folks uh, some of the, the folks doing uh, fire, like wildfire work, and they, it was all prescribed burns, right? And like, yeah. I had a chance to talk to the fire ecologist and it was like, oh yeah, we're this park on the cutting edge um, and we're doing like more prescribed burns than any other parks. And it was really cool, right? Um, but like, obviously it can't just be happening in national parks, right? It's like those prescribed burns. I mean, it's just, it's like a massive undertaking, right? Because it's like drought and increased temperatures as a result of climate change, but also just a century plus of fire suppression um, in a lot of these areas. Um, and, you know, I don't know, like, I wonder, like, I feel like this, like, the, like that particular issue maybe highlights like a much larger issue that I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on, which is just availability of like funding resources to do this work. Yeah, it, it's, it's a real, it's certainly a real challenge. Um, you know, again, I, I, um, it, I can bring some examples from the Forest Service work that we've done. You know, for a long time, the, they're, you know, having to spend much of their budget on things like fire suppression, historical fire suppression. You know, di different forests have, have evolved under different types of fire regimes, but there has been throughout many of the, the, the forests um, out in, in, in here in the West, um, you know, historically, they, you know, frequent low severity fires have been, you know, for, for forests like the one I live in, um, a natural part of, of um, the, you know, the ecosystem. But since we've suppressed, yes, we're starting to see um, forests that are, are unnaturally dense. 
that on top of the high temperatures and extreme drought that we're seeing, uh, and then more people living in this, what's called the wildland urban interface, so more people like me living in the middle of a national forest, we're seeing more ignitions. And so the risks of wildfire for all of the above reasons are, are much higher. And it's going to require some prioritization to get a handle on it. So for some forests, that is gonna mean some active, um, you know, fuels reduction. And for some people, um, cutting down any tree is a bad thing. Um, unfortunately, we're at the point where we do need to do some active management, um, targeted thinning, prescribed burning, not everywhere. Um, I think, again, that's going to require some prioritization. Um, and there are different tools, you know, to help um, agencies like the Forest Service and the Park Service figure out where to, to best do that kind of management. Some places we actually may need to just let fires do their own job um, uh, and, and burn. Uh, but, you know, luckily there, there have been some policy changes, um, some, some important rules changes within the, the Forest Service that are freeing up funds to do that kind of proactive um, management. Uh, and I think there just needs to um, also be this recognition that um, you know, restoration of forests may not look like restoring forests to what they were 200 years ago or 400 years ago. Um, it may be, you know, perhaps looking at replanting with, with species that are going to be better adapted to conditions that we're going to start seeing in the future. And so, yeah, those conversations are already happening in a lot of places. Awesome. Yeah, that's good to hear. And I mean, it does feel like, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, also living out here in the West, I mean, not, not too far from, from where you are in Bend, I'm based in Boise, right. Idaho. I mean, it does feel like that it, 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 it feels like there's, there's a change. Like it feels like the wildfires we've had over the last couple of years have forced a lot of folks to, to like recognize the scale of this issue, I guess. Um, I think that's true. I, you know, I think just like sea level rise and hurricanes um, mm -hmm. have, you know, woken people up on, on coastal areas. I think the wildfire seasons that we've been experiencing out here definitely, definitely been a wake-up call. Um, yeah. You know, you hate to admit, you know, I, again, I, I, I've been working on this issue for three decades. I wish we were much further along. And three decades ago, I thought we would be a lot further along on, on the emission side of things than we are. Um, unfortunately, it has taken... Um, experiencing you know extreme hurricane seasons and extreme wildfire seasons for people to kind of be waking up to the issue but um you know i'm hopeful that it's not going to take another three decades of even worse challenges for us to you know finally actually be making a difference on this yeah absolutely absolutely you know, I, I don't think you know and again even though i'm i kind of unfortunately see climate adaptation as uh, a focus as being a, a bit of job security because, you know, we're, we're already deep in this and we're going to have to find ways to, to manage for the changes we're, we're seeing. I can't imagine what changes we will see in 30 years if we don't also get a handle on the emissions. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's, it's a little bit uh, worrisome to admit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I 
found myself thinking about, and I mean, I mentioned this briefly before, as I, you know, am, am reading through, as I sort of read through this report, the approach, the rad approach that you explained, like, makes a lot of sense to me. And as I was reading it, I was trying to like put myself in the shoes of a land manager, right? And and like how this would work. And and I was thinking specifically about this national conservation area just south of town from where I live because just just because like I you know uh, uh, I'm I'm a part of this friends group that's connected to that NCA and like I've got a good working relationship with the land manager who's responsible for that area and their very small staff um, for that NCA and so I was just kind of trying to like think about like, okay, how would somebody who is in this position, like how would they view this and how would it maybe start to shift their approach to the way that they have been managing that area out there? Um, and the thing that I just kept getting hung up on, right, is that like this NCA south of town is enormous, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres and their full-time staff is four people, Yeah. right? And more than half of the habitat has already been severely degraded, right? So more than half of this, the native sagebrush ecosystem has already been converted to cheatgrass monoculture. Um, and they don't have the funding to do just the most basic monitoring. So like that NCA was established through an act of Congress specifically to uh, protect habitat for birds of prey. And they don't even have the budget to do basic monitoring of the raptors. So it's like all of these really dramatic ecosystem changes are happening. And it's just kind of like, uh, I mean, there's been some sporadic research, you know, like when funding can get pulled from other agencies or other sources, but like the actual land management agency, and in this case, it's Bureau of Land Management, it's not the Park Service, but like the actual land management agency doesn't have the funding to actually do what they're legally required to do if you read the act that established the area as an NCA. And so it's like, I'm trying to think about like this rad framework and I'm like, if I'm a land manager here, I'm just like, I can't do anything until I have the funding to even like know what's happening in this protected landscape. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's certainly a, a, an enormous challenge. Um, I, I think, you know, again, one of the things that, because it's coming from my, my recent work with, with the Forest Service, is they've really been investing in kind of public-private partnerships and, and trying to get um, engagement of communities, you know, so that, they, that the managers themselves are, are not, um, you know, spread too thin. Um, and so, you know, hopefully BLM, I think, is able to capitalize on some of that as well. Um, you know, Park Service is, is doing similar work, but you know, I I, I hate to it, when when we were working with the Park Service and others to develop the RAD framework, the accept part was the really the hard, the hardest part. You know, a lot of people are going to be on you know, continue to try to be on the resist end of things to the best that we can and try and buy buy time for you know, for the, the habitats and the species that we care about. Um, the direct part, at least, you know, you have, it's going to require resources and prioritization and creativity and vision. Um, what exactly that is going to look like is going to vary, obviously, by different regions and different types 
I think the accept part is the hardest part. And for the park service, for example, you know, a lot of a lot of the people think about national parks as being, you know, the big charismatic wildlife and features. But I mean, national parks are as diverse as America. You know, you have everything from Yellowstone and you know, and Glacier and you know, the volcanic monuments and all the way to the National Mall, you know, which is just historic and cultural, not not necessarily natural resource focused. And so the solutions are going to be just as, as variable. Um, but for all of them, particularly for the ones that um, I think, you know, have an endangered species that they're lost, they're, they're, they're gone forever um, if they go extinct. Or for historic um, areas, if, if they're damaged, you can't really rebuild a historic building and have that still have the same historic significance, even though you can perhaps put in a replica. So I think the accept part of the, the framework is really, really difficult. Um, but for areas um, you know, like, um, you know, in, in Idaho that are so vast and already experiencing changes that are going to be really hard to uh, get a handle on, it's going to require some prioritization. It's so hard to like let go of and an area, you know, and, and especially for a lot of these managers who like witness the change, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's really hard to just accept that that's permanent. But I feel like one of the things that is also really fundamentally important to this is like adequately funding the science and research that allows us to even understand how we can direct the change. And like in this in this example, you know, our NCA, it's like the Snake River Canyon has the highest nesting density densities of birds of prey anywhere in North America. Nobody like if you know, if you were to say like okay, let's let's do let's focus on the directing change, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't nobody knows. Like what you know what I mean? Like it's a complete unknown as to like what you would do to do that direct action, you know, like everybody's still like, the, and they're, and I mean, part of that is just, it's really complex and all of these things are really complex, but like part of it is that it would require a monumental investment, at least compared to like what is being invested in these like land management practices right now. And I mean, I remember, like I was telling you about, you know, the summer I worked at Lassen Volcanic National Park and how impressed I was with uh, the the prescribed burn work that they were doing. Like one of the other things I remember about working at Lassen Volcanic National Park that summer is that I remember the, uh, the superintendent of the park um, calling an all park meeting and announcing to everybody that just two years ago, the size of the staff of the park was three times what it was that year. Wow. Yeah. And like, I don't think that's come back. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, and, and so like, I wonder if that, I mean, again, I, I guess I'm kind of coming back to this question of just like the sense that you have uh, from collaborating like with these folks from the park service who are focused on climate adaptation. Like, is there a sense of like, we need a monstrously like much larger investment in like this kind of work if we're going to make any progress. Cause like, 
it like that rad framework, like if I were to, you know, like, I mean, I'm, I'm planning on having a conversation, uh, you know, with some of the land managers that work at our NCA down there uh, about this and I'm going to get their feedback, but like, I know what their response is going to be like, of like, what, you know, what do we do? Like, we don't even have the funding to do the research to even know what's happening now. Yeah, I, you know, it, I, I wish I had an easier answer other than, yes, we need to really vastly in, increase the amount of investment that we're making on, in our federal land management agencies and water management agencies and so forth, um, for sure. I do, and I, I, I would be curious about that conversation that you have with them. I'm, I'm, you know, we, one of the things that we're developing with the Park Services um, a, a training to actually bring this these the thinking specifically to those park managers and have them grapple with it um, because the, the people on the ground are the ones who are going to really need to have you know the say <laughs> you know they they know the areas and they know the challenges and so forth um, you know so you know that that might be um, you know an important next step one of the things that I think has helped the park service in thinking about some of this is the scenario work that they've been doing. So they've been, you know, able to step back and, and think, you know, think about the what if um, scenarios. And, and in doing so, they, you know, yeah, there, there are some, some tough questions that, and tough challenges that they might not feel like they have the opportunity to, to solve. But at the same time, it's helped them um, in some areas find, things that actually make sense across whatever uh, unfolds. And so they may be able to be a little bit more creative in, in how they think about managing the parks um, just by thinking outside of the box a bit. And, um, you know, that might help the, those managers in, in you know, in, this, in the snake area as well. Um, you know, just kind of step back, you know, think about what some of the worst case scenarios are. You know, are there things that, that they might do a little bit differently that, um, you know, maybe will help get, get on, on that direct trajectory rather than the accept trajectory. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're hopeful um, that, the, that the Bureau of Land Management, you know, will, you know, take on uh, some of these challenges more and more, and more um, you know, just like the Forest Service has been and the Park Service and others. I think that agency is a little bit behind the curve in, in certain um, elements of, of thinking about adaptation, but, you know, the challenges are just as great in many of those lands. Um, I know one other area that is, is, you know, speaking of some of these issues of, you know, resisting and, 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 and perhaps even directing change that I do know occurs in a lot of the BLM lands has been, um, you know, the expansion of, of woody vegetation, you know, things like pinion, pine, and juniper. And, Places in the southwest, they've actually lost a lot of that habitat, really important habitat, to drought and beetle outbreaks. So very, very much climate-related risks there. But in other areas, we're seeing um, the expansion of some, some of that vegetation into currently desirable habitat like the sagebrush um, and grassland areas. How, how do we grapple with that? I know in, in some, uh, for some land managers, they're, they're actively resisting that expansion, right? Because they want to maintain it as, as habitat for the raptors or sage grouse or what have you. But in others, 
you know, is that an acceptable change or is that even a change that we might want to, you know, enhance by planting pinion pines in, in new areas where we think they might survive? Because, you know, culturally and, and for certain species, those are also important habitats. So, I mean, these are really, really interesting, I think, very much value-driven uh, questions. Yeah, for sure. And, but the really important questions to have, and I mean, I think it's, I mean, clearly like this report is like hopefully getting a lot of people sort of thinking about those questions in like a more directed way, I guess, um, or at least establishes a framework for thinking about it, you know, a little bit more clearly. Very, very much so. I think just that framework and just having the under the fundamental understanding of the principles um, is what is important. And then again, I think one of the reasons why you having conversations with your friends group in the managers on the, on the ground there and are, are going out and, and actually doing the trainings is the essential next step, because that's going to help people um, really understand, um, you know, what kinds of questions that they need to start asking, if not answering all right. Um, I, I think it was I think it was this New York Times article that that I read about the report where they talked about like sort of the process of developing this like during the Trump administration and how it was sort of like the release of it was timed, obviously to coincide with like him getting booted from office. Like I mean, is that like I don't like I wonder if you can talk about like what it was like developing this report, like working with Park Service employees, like under the Trump administration and then what the decision-making process like looked like as far as the timing of release? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of the release timing, that's, that's, you know, that's obviously the, the Park Service is, yeah, needs to speak. Sure, yeah. On that. I <laughs> yeah. can't really, um, I, I don't even really know I, I could answer even if I guessed. Um, now, as an, you know, an NGO, National Wildlife Federation, was working on climate change issues in general, a challenge during the last administration? It, it absolutely was. I mean, there was very much a war on science, um, but we continued to work very closely with the agency's staff on, on climate change without hesitation um, on their part. And, and so timing wise, yeah, of course, now that we have a, a more favorable administration, we're happy to see that this has been able to get some, you know, probably more exposure than it may, might have had it been re released a little bit sooner, but it's the same product that was being developed throughout. And, um, you know, and I think that there's uh, just, again, because we're seeing so many changes, it's just the reality of having to deal with these impacts, no matter who is in office, um, it has, has uh, hit home. So um, I think that the, the, the bigger factor now is, is, as you have mentioned several times, is, is getting the funding and the resources to these agencies to be able to, to, to hit the ground running on this stuff. I'm, I'm hoping that we're, uh, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we're going to get like a, a climate conservation core that could like step in and start implementing this and doing some of the work and some of the research and some of the on the ground kind of work required with like directing that change. Yeah, I mean, and there, there is a lot of discussion of just that kind of thing through, um, in, you know, the infrastructure pieces and, you know, the, it, it's all, luckily, I think that there's a lot of um, talk of 
of this synergies between a lot of the decisions that that need to be make um, need to be made on on the infrastructure side of things, the energy side of things, the the you know natural land management side of things, and you know it kind of it's, it's similar to that idea of um, having adaptation and mitigation, and then the carbon sequestration bridging the two. Um, you know I think that a lot of that organic thinking is happening, and uh, you know. Hopefully, again, it's not going to be another 30 years before we see change that I thought we would have seen a lot sooner than we ended up seeing. So, Right around the same time that this climate adaptation report was released, um, there was also this kind of high profile cover story released from the Atlantic, uh, basically like proposing turning over management of the national parks to uh, Native American tribes or a coalition of, of Native American tribes. Like, I guess I'm, I guess like my question is in your role, like with the National Wildlife Federation and like just going through this, uh, this past year and like the racial reckoning that like all of us in America have experienced, like, is that something that's like on the radar, like at National Wildlife Federation, as far as like, not just looking at, as you said, imagining our future and directing change, but also like coming to terms with like the really troubling, like deeply racist history of the National Park Service. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, well, the National Wildlife Federation has um, for several years now really just done a tremendous amount of work internally as well as out in the communities to, to, um, to, make conservation more inclusive and equitable. Um, uh, and again, it's a big investment on a staff, big investment in thinking. Um, I, I think it's reflected by, um, you know, the federal land management agencies as well. I, I you know, there's, there's obviously um, growing interest in better engaging with um, what's so-called traditional ecological knowledge and incorporating that into resource management, wildlife management. Um, you know, it's, it's, but it's still, uh, we have a, a long way to go. I think, you know, I, again, I think the Park Service, um, you know, folks would probably speak better to what their own agency's efforts have been on this. I, I know we've really been working very, very hard to, to um, make, conservation more inclusive and, and equitable. And, um, you know, I think, you know, one, one place I think that parks can play a really important role is, is you know, just being open and engaging and, in, in, you know, with diverse communities and helping, you know, what, one of the things I think for many of us who've gotten involved in conservation, probably one of the first things that um, incited us was visiting a park. Um, whether it was a national park or your local park or the beach or what have you. And I, you know, I think that the more we can get people in, out and engaged in nature, then the more um, interest we'll see in, in, you know, the ability to get more, you know, hopefully more inner city people involved. And, you know, it's, again, it's something we've been really investing a lot of effort on. And, you know, I think we're seeing real change. Not that we don't need more. <laughs> we need a lot more. That, that article really kind of got me thinking and it's, you know, it's not, I don't know, it's not something that I think like most people is something that would even like cross your mind, right? But, you know, what's interesting to me is that like in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, 
parks are being turned back over to indigenous people um, and shared responsibility over management, but also like granting them title to the land in, in certain situations. I mean, is that like, are we just like culturally like too far away from that in the US? I mean, is that something that is like on anybody's radar who you talk to like either at National Wildlife Federation or the folks you're collaborating with at the Park Service? Yeah, it's, it's not something that I have come across personally, um, that specific idea, but um, I have heard, um, you know, in, in Canada, for example, um, that, and, you know, I, it's a good question. I, I don't have a good answer, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but it's a good question. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, appreciate your interest in this. And, you know, and again, I, I, love to to hear some of your follow-up work um you know with, with some of the folks in your region you know and how they're how they're thinking about this because for me um it's one thing to think about it from this you know big picture lofty principle-based perspective it's another to, to actually see this stuff um being applied in in real life and i think that's really what we're hoping for so well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks again. That was our interview with climate adaptation expert Patty Glick from the National Wildlife Federation. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast series and the organization that produces it, you can head over to birdsofpreyncapartnership.org or check out Birds of Prey NCA Partnership on Facebook. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wild Lens Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, with music from The Great Turtle.